You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health featuring Mark Lipsitch, professor of epidemiology. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, March 20th. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining. Uh, I'm going to speak only very briefly and, and then mostly take questions. Um, there are lots of things to highlight potentially, uh, but to me it seems that the uh, perhaps most pressing issue, uh, as we've all been hearing about, is that the, at the even at the very outset of this epidemic, personal protective equipment is running slow, running low in hospitals around the country. Um, uh, healthcare workers are having to reuse it uh, or not even have it, um, and uh, and calls are going out to seamstresses around the country to make cloth masks. This is not an adequate national response, uh, and of the many things that um, need to happen, I think perhaps the most pressing uh, in the coming days is to uh, massively increase our production of personal protective equipment. Um, I'll point you to an op-ed that I wrote with the former Secretary of the Navy, Richard Danzig, that appeared in Bloomberg Opinion this morning, uh, highlighting five areas for uh, action over the next 12 to 18 months, but starting immediately uh, for the federal government to take. The first one is uh, is to upscale the production of serologic testing, which would allow us to identify people who are at low risk of, of reinfection or should be protected from reinfection um, and allow them to get back to work, uh, along with also allowing us to track the progression of herd immunity and other benefits. The second uh, is scaling up onto a really wartime footing, the production of, uh, of, of PPE ventilators and other, other uh, items. There's been some talk from the Washington about doing that, but uh, it doesn't actually seem to be happening on a real-time basis. Uh, the third is to uh, protect critical infrastructure and make sure that we have uh, backups for the crucial items of food production, power production, uh, water, transportation, and uh, cyber infrastructure. The fourth is to uh, begin now to work on election uh, planning for November so that we can have a democratic, fair, uh, and open election, regardless of whether uh, contagion is still present as it very likely will be. Uh, and the last um, is to make a national effort on compensating for the educational losses that will begin to, that are beginning to happen already, uh, as well as the nutritional and other uh, secondary effects of closing schools. Uh, this is the sort of thing that really does not need to happen in every state separately, in every locality separately, with with uh, uh, papered together solutions. This is really a a national emergency on all of these fronts. So uh, those are our, some of our recommendations. Those are our recommendations. I'm happy to take questions about those, but also more broadly about what's going on. So I'll start questions now. First participant, your line is live. Hi. Um, I had a, a question relating to, uh, I know you've also been working on modeling this. Um, do you have any updates on the modeling? Uh, for where things look like they're going. And then also, um, since I know you, you began doing some modeling, I believe, in mid-January, when did you first have any communications with uh, any of your um, federal counterparts um, regarding the possibility of this pandemic really being a pandemic? Um, could you speak to that? Thanks. Sure. Um, I'm not exactly sure when my first communication with uh, federal counterparts is. I'd have to go back through my emails and, and figure that out. Uh, and I don't believe it was very early. Well, I, I, I should look because I'm not sure. Uh, everything's moved so fast that the sense of time is one of the first things that goes haywire. Um, but I will try to get back to you on that. In terms of the modeling, um, there was a presentation by a number of groups to uh, high-ranking federal officials yesterday morning. Uh, and is that yesterday morning? No, Wednesday morning. And there was a... I would say fairly unanimous view that for countries with uh, an intensive care infrastructure to protect, there are two not very good options. Uh, one is to continue social distancing 
to put it in place where it's not where it hasn't happened uh, in as intense a way as possible to try to reduce the surge on intensive care uh, and then perhaps to let off uh, at some point if the epidemic comes more under control but that that let up would be brief because the epidemic would come back and we would have to restart those uh, those measures uh, relatively soon. Uh, different groups have different estimates of how soon, but uh, but the yeah. the problem is that yeah, without yeah. significant herd immunity in the population, resurgences are relatively quick, and putting and the alternative is not to have this kind of social distancing in place, uh, or to have it inadequately and to overwhelm the uh, intensive care units. Um, those are both really quite unacceptable solutions, but are the two scenarios that people are uh, believe are possible in the existing landscape. Uh, the, evaluate, the advent of a very effective uh, antiviral drug or other form of treatment would change that potentially, although it would have to be very good. Um, the ability to really get cases down to minuscule levels, as has perhaps happened in China, would mean that perhaps that we might be able to re-implement the sort of case-based containment measures that are uh, that have been uh, more successful in some smaller countries. Though the fear of imported cases uh, would make that very very challenging. Increasing intensive care capacity. Uh, would help not only to cushion the blow and to give us a little more breathing room, but would also allow us to uh, tolerate more cases before the intensive care units felt filled up and would thereby, in this sort of on and off scenario, and would thereby accelerate the acquisition of herd immunity. All of these are really bad options, but uh, but making them less bad by some of those types of interventions uh, would would help. In order to do even this sort of on and off scenario well, we need massively more testing than we have in the United States. Uh, that is still inadequate, and it's not only the test reagents, but also the RNA extraction kits and the swabs that are in shortage in many places, as well as the personal protective equipment for the testers. So uh, this is a, a, a real failure uh, of organization by our federal government, in my opinion, um, and really needs to be uh, addressed as soon as possible, because even the bad solutions will uh, will be impossible uh, without, and we will just end up uh, not being able to control spread. Is is the concern, um, and I think that was the general consensus of the various modeling groups from around the world that. Uh, presented. Thanks. Our, ne our next question. Uh, hi, thank you so much. There, there's been some early uh, numbers of on the um, numbers of cases in the United States. I guess with with severe symptoms by age group. And um, does any of that yeah. mean anything at, at this point in terms of you know what age groups are getting it, or is it just so too premature to make any real? Like you hear, you see some of these headlines saying, "Oh, more young people are getting it than in China," but it seems like we have no idea what the denominator is yet, right? Yes, I was—I must admit—surprised to see that report come out of the Centers for Disease Control. It's a fairly standard uh, principle in uh, in epidemiology, not just infectious disease epidemiology, uh, where that you—if you have different data sets different groups of people who have been ascertained in different ways. For example, cruise ship passengers on one hand and uh, people who have been ascertained because their symptoms were severe on another hand and people who are contacts on another hand. You don't combine those and do a single analysis because there's no interpretation of the proportions of people in different groups uh, that is straightforward with that. And so, uh, so I was surprised to see what seemed to be an analysis that Put together uh, the different U.S. cases and made conclusions about the proportions of severe cases by age group or the proportion of different age groups among the severe cases when one of the important criteria for getting into the 
study itself was to have severe symptoms due to our very limited testing. So I would say it is premature to conclude much from those, those findings. Thank you. Our next question. Hi, thank you very much for taking my question, for doing the call today. Uh, you mentioned that obviously a key to the public health, health response here um, is developing an effective antiviral. Um, you don't sound optimistic that that's something that's in the offing. Can you, I realize it's not necessarily your area of expertise, but can you give us a kind of a state of the current research landscape at this point, given that some of the results we've seen so far have been mixed? Yeah, uh, it is not something I've followed closely just due to lack of time, but, uh, but I understand that there was a report of an unsuccessful trial of some HIV drugs yesterday in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, I know that uh, there was a report in The Guardian that a Chinese group had found success with favipiravir, uh, and a Japanese drug that's that's uh, was designed for flu, uh, but I haven't been able to find the data or the the um, scientific source of that report yet. Uh, maybe some others have. Uh, I know that there are a number of clinical trials going on. I'm not I'm not knowledgeable enough to have a meaningful level of optimism or pessimism, except to say that. Uh, even very good antiviral drugs are often not effective in cases that have been infected for a long period of time or have minimal effectiveness. So um, tests of, of antiviral drugs in severe cases may fail to find a benefit, even if there would be a benefit uh, in, at earlier stages. So I think, uh, I think there are a lot of challenges of getting these drugs uh, evaluated. I'm sure that uh, many excellent efforts are being made, uh, and it's not my area, so I think I'll stop my comments there. Thank you. Our next question. Uh, thank you for taking my uh, my question. So, you know, in Florida, we've seen a, a high number of our cases with no known links to travel. Um, the governor for a while resisted uh, describing that as community spread and has since um, said there is evidence of community spread in Broward, but we're seeing this phenomenon in, in Miami as well. What would your recommendations be to, to local health officials here as to how to best deal with uh, spread of this virus if we don't have enough testing really to know uh, where it is or where it's coming from? I would also add that at least based on what I saw on, on television last night, uh, the, the um, networked thermometer company whose name is escaping me right now also shows that Florida is a big hotspot of atypically high fever activity uh, at the moment. Uh, and maybe you could chase that down because I don't remember even the name of the company. Um, uh, and that was widespread in Florida based on the map that was shown on, on Rachel Maddow last night. Uh, and it's not unprecedented, I should say, for the scientists to be getting their information from news programs uh, in epidemics. That was one of the one of the features of SARS and to some extent also in 2009. So the news travels both ways. Um, uh, but to answer your question about countermeasures, uh, I would say first that high levels of uh, syndromic disease at this point of, of fever and cough, um, which in most states are monitored by, by emergency departments and other, other um, systems should be indicative that something is very strange uh, and the fever data from the from the company add to that concept uh, it's it's not cold season it's really the very very late for flu season um, and so it's a fairly safe assumption uh, although not certain that a significant proportion of that disease is um, is covid nineteen so I think treating it as if that was the case would be very wise, and certainly that's what other jurisdictions around the country uh, have done. And that means implementing social distancing measures uh, in a fairly intensive way, um, in an intensive way, and uh, preparing to build up capacity or, or and building up capacity for uh, healthcare surge. Um, Florida has obviously a number of elderly people who are going to be at high risk for severe severe outcomes, and 
one of the very clear lessons from Italy and from China and from other places that have been hit hard is that there's a long delay of three or four weeks between implementing control measures and seeing a downturn in demand on intensive care because infections now lead to intensive care needs two to three or four weeks from now. So it is really uh, bad public health practice to say we'll wait, we'll wait and see uh, if we have a, a stress on our system and then we'll act because then you have three more weeks of exponentially growing demand uh, and that is not uh, that is not good. So I would say uh, without knowing the details of the data in Florida um, that there are a number of signs indicating that more stringent measures are needed and also that uh, if the testing remains limited, the, there are ways to do surveillance with uh, tens or hundreds of tests per day um, in order to, uh, among mild cases, uh, in order to, uh, mild cases of respiratory infection, in order to ascertain the trajectory of the epidemic. Um, and those sorts of uh, testing combined with syndromic data should be very uh, helpful in, in verifying whether there is indeed an unusual level of uh, of this syndrome of, of fever and cough, and if and what portion of it has to do with uh, COVID-19. Our next question. Hi, Mark. Thank you for taking my question. Um, as you know, many people continue to dismiss the threat of COVID-19 and resist social distancing in part because they continue to compare it to the flu. I wonder if you can address a comparison between the two to overtly explain why COVID-19 threatens to overwhelm healthcare systems here and abroad while flu doesn't. Um, using Italy as an example, uh, in 2016-2017 in Italy, five and a half million flu, there were five and a half million flu illnesses, 24,000 deaths, compared to 41,000 cases of COVID-19 and 3,400 COVID-19 deaths. I understand that COVID-19 is at least as infectious as flu and potentially 10 times deadlier, but at this stage, why are the smaller numbers of COVID-19 overwhelming Italian hospitals, which are a harbinger for the rest of us? Is it the speed with which the cases are blowing up? Is it because progression of, of flu is slower? Is this an example of how flattening the curve makes a difference? Can you just kind of talk about that, please? Uh, yeah, I think... Um I think it's a combination of things, uh, and I've been—I know you emailed this question, and I've been thinking about it. Uh, so the the total number of deaths for flu is stretched out over a whole flu season, which is typically a couple of months. Um, the deaths from COVID probably are not even the full number that will will die from the number of cases we have now, because. Uh, because it takes a long time, several weeks at least, uh, typically between becoming infected and dying. Um, so it is indeed the um, the regional uh, concentration, so that uh, so that certain healthcare systems are being more overwhelmed than others. It's the temporal concentration of having them all uh, build up in a very short time period. Um, and it is indeed the fact that that per case the risk of needing intensive care uh, and the risk of dying are <laughs> considerably higher for COVID than for flu. Um, it's also uh, the case, I don't know how those flu deaths are uh, counted in Italy. There's a whole industry in my business of trying to figure out how many people die from flu because most of them are never diagnosed as flu. They typically, we think many of the respiratory and circulatory deaths in the winter are due to flu. I'm not sure how the counting was done in Italy, but um, that's another piece of it is that the, uh, the COVID cases are in intensive care with respiratory uh, distress and, and related symptoms for a long period of time, whereas a number of the, at least a number of the flu deaths are probably acute um, my, myocardial infarctions, heart attacks, strokes, and other uh, and other things that sometimes uh, don't keep you in intensive care for as long. So it's not just the number of people, but it's the duration for each person. 
and based on the limited data that I've been able to look at from from China, uh, it looks as though people stay in intensive care really for quite a long time, typically with this disease. That's part of the answer. I'm not sure it's the whole answer, but those are some of the factors. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Our next question. Hi, Mark. Uh, thanks for talking with us. This is great. Um, my question is this. Um, over the last two weeks, we've seen the maximum recommended size of gatherings go down from 1,000 to 250 to 50, and finally this week to 10. Um, and what I want to ask is, is there any objective, evidence-based way that we can arrive at these recommendations? And can mathematical, mathematical models predict the results of these interventions? Uh, that's a great question. I think we can, we can do some sort of semi-quantitative predictions um, where the, the key idea, and this has been emphasized uh, by some of my colleagues, I can't actually remember which ones on a, on a recent uh, exchange. It might have been Alex Vespignani who made this point. Uh, the, the number of transmission opportunities in a gathering is proportional to the square of the number of people, because if I can transmit to you, if I can transmit to each of the other nine people in my gathering and each of them can, then there are sort of uh, ten times nine opportunities for transmission. Um, and so the emphasis on making it smaller is really uh, partly motivated by that, partly motivated by um, the notion that um, if super spreading is important, and I think it still remains to be seen how important it is for this um, for this virus, uh, a big event is a is an opportunity to, if someone is very infectious to uh, infect quite a large number of people. But um, but I think I think that essentially the in my view at least the declining number of recommended people <laughs> is a, is a way of signaling being more and more serious about the need to socially distance. And I'm not sure that there's a particular number that is uh, magical. Thanks. Our next question. Hi, Mark. How are you? Um, have hospitals and medical practices been given any clear practical guidelines on how to define non-essential surgery? And for patients who are choosing to move ahead with, say, a cancer surgery, a reconstructive surgery, could having surgery at this time potentially uh, raise one's risk of contracting the virus either through environmental contact or through surgical incisions or even during the recovery period from surgery when immune function, immune function is maybe less than optimal? Uh, I don't think I'm qualified to answer that except in, general, in very general terms that, okay. um, that hospitals are going to be places where there, is, uh, where there are people shedding virus more and more both because they're normal, because they're gatherings of large numbers of people and some people who are asymptomatic uh, will be there and also because obviously sick people come to hospitals. So I think the general, the, the general uh, notion of trying to avoid hospitals is even better advice than avoiding shopping malls or, or bars. Uh, I don't know enough to give you a, a good answer about the particular risks of different kinds of surgery, so I will, I will defer that question. Okay. Thank you. Our next question. Hi, Mark. Thanks for taking my question. I have a question about the science paper that appeared uh, Monday about the undocumented infections that drove 86% of the cases in Wuhan, China. I wondered if you've uh, done any thinking about that and, and what it implies for the general characteristics of this uh, infection and how it's being driven epidemiologically? Yeah, I think uh, it's clear that undocumented infections, uh, which is a funny word, maybe I would just say uh, non-ascertained infections. It almost sounds like we're talking about a different issue when you say undocumented. So I would say uh, infections that have not been ascertained uh, are clearly playing a role in different settings. The size of that role is quite dependent on the setting, uh, and there was a particular model structure that was able to estimate that 86%. But I think um, increasing amounts of evidence, most of it still indirect from um, 
from analyses of who transmits to different to whom among places where contact tracing is still working or was still working for a period show that uh, a substantial portion uh, almost up to half of transmission seems to happen in the pre or, or right around symptom onset period uh, and that that is based on a preprint from the group at in the Netherlands, led by Jaco Wallinga uh, at the RIVM, which is their National Institute of Health, um, <clears throat> one of the best modeling groups in the world. Uh, and their estimate is, I think it's around 40 plus, between 40 and 50 percent of transmission is pre or right around uh, symptom onset. So it's clear that that is a problem. Uh, it's also clear that in Wuhan, there were cases who just didn't get tested because they were so overwhelmed as a system, uh, which might be pushing it up to even a higher level. Um, so I think the practical implication is uh, we need much, much, much greater testing capacity so that we can uh, ascertain cases. And the sort of counter to that is the example of the town of Vaux, Italy, where they had such massive testing capacity relative to their small population that they were able to stop transmission simply by testing uh, even even healthy appearing people. Um, so it just highlights that without testing capacity, we have at least one hand tied behind our back in the control efforts. Thank you. Next question. Hi, Mark. Um, I want to backtrack to uh, something you said earlier about serologic testing and getting people back to work. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. This would be a whole different, if I understand it, a whole different uh, range of testing to find people who have already been infected and re recovered. And um, do you have any idea at this point in the epidemic here what that population may be in the United States? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the, <laughs> I do not know the answer to that. I uh, I will just elaborate a little bit more on what the concept is and what the challenges of it are. The concept is that if someone has previously been infected, they will have an antibody response. Uh, potentially, even if they were never uh, symptomatic at all, they will nonetheless have a protective immune response, which can be detected by measuring antibodies in the blood uh, or sometimes through other, uh, other body fluids. So it can be done at home uh, according to some procedures that have been proposed. Um, the real question, of course, is whether those antibodies are, whether the presence of antibodies really does signal that you are immune to becoming infected and becoming infectious to others. So it would, before doing that on a large scale, it would be necessary to check that. But, um, but the value would be uh, potentially tremendous if we had a workforce that was growing as the epidemic progressed. That could uh, that could safely go back into uh, various jobs, including healthcare workers. But I think at the moment we don't really have uh, an estimate of that number. Um, short of having widespread serologic testing, one thing that I think in some places is being done is to keep records of who has tested positive at what time, uh, on what day, and so uh, with. Uh, as we begin to understand the, the natural history of this infection better, it may be possible to just use that as a proxy for having been infected. I mean, it is, it's evidence of having been infected um, as a proxy for being immune. But at the moment, this is a, this is a somewhat speculative strategy, but um, if we're going to keep our economy working at all, I think it will be very helpful to have some people, and if we're going to keep healthcare working at all, it's going to be helpful to have some people uh, that we know are immune if that if such people exist. And so would that necessarily have to come, uh, since we're so far behind on testing for active cases, this is sort of after that? Well, there's, there's, you don't need one to do the other. You, I mean, you need it to validate that, that the people who show antibodies on your test, on your serologic test, in, in fact, did, at least some of them did shed virus uh, before so that you know that it's detecting something real. But um, but there's no reason why we have to wait for one uh, to do the other. And, in fact, uh, there have been reports from China of, of home-based serodiagnostic kits that uh, 
that you can uh, I think it must be with saliva I need to I need to read them more carefully but there are there are uh, innovations happening in other countries and I know there's there are some efforts underway here as well but uh, on that as on that as with the virus testing we're behind Should do both at once our next question thank you um, I'd like to ask even a bit more about the serologic testing so what what level of effort would that require just in terms of the the science of it? Do we basically already have the ability, obviously, and we would just need to ramp up? And if so, what kind of an investment are, are you imagining? And then I just have to ask the really obvious question, which is you're coughing. Are you okay? It sounds like a dry cough. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I have had this dry cough for about a month, and I think it's from fatigue. It, it doesn't. I okay. have checked my temperature repeatedly. Thank you for your concern. Good. Okay, uh, good. Um, uh, and it doesn't seem to be getting worse. So uh, okay. I think it's something else. I think it's lack of sleep. Um, okay. In terms of the serology, um, I am struggling to keep up with the information, but um, Florian Kramer, uh, Kramer at, at Mount Sinai in New York uh, has recently um, deposited a preprint that shows uh, a serologic test that was developed in his laboratory for this, um, which is, I think, not very high throughput, but is, uh, but is effective, and uh, he's been very um, active on Twitter explaining what the uh, strengths and limitations of that are and the uses of that. So I would recommend looking at that. Um, as I say, my understanding is uh, from news reports that um, both China and Singapore have developed uh, technologies, including more high throughput and, and sort of user-friendly technologies. Um, uh, there, was a, there was an article in Science Magazine in the news section at the end of February about that. And uh, and I'm struggling now to keep up with the the developments in China, but uh, my understanding is that there are some some quite uh, usable approaches that just would have to be manufactured on a large scale. Thank you. Our next question. Mark, thank you for your for, for your time here, and I appreciate your article in the Atlantic, which was. Um, so helpful. We represent hundreds of um, large health systems and nursing homes and senior living companies, and we. So, so my my angle is wanted to understand what this means for the healthcare system. I guess um, so many questions, but the one key one is this coming uh, surge. Do you have any sort of sense of what we're talking about in terms of um, where, how much capacity? How, how big a bottleneck will we see, say, in um, ICU beds, do you think? And do you have a sense, will it play out that in certain geographies like Manhattan, it'll be quite constrained, but maybe in some other geographies, it's maybe not quite as constrained? And, and when do you think this sort of peak will be hitting uh, acute care? Many good questions. Very hard to answer for a number of reasons. So, so let me tell you what I think can be said. Um, Comparisons between places are very hard to do, but um, but we uh, have a preprint on the Harvard Dash server. Uh, if you type in dash.harvard.edu, uh, it's the first preprint that comes up because it turns out more people are interested in this topic right now than than uh, other other areas of scholarship, uh, which I wish I, w I can't wait to become obscure again. Um, but uh, it's the first one that's listed on there. Um, or you can search for it uh, that compares what happened in Wuhan to to the U.S. Uh, intensive care bed capacity. So Wuhan um, cracked down on, uh, shut the city down on January 23rd when they had about 500 or so confirmed cases and 23 confirmed deaths or 20, uh, 20 odd confirmed deaths. Um, they had their peak demand for intensive care four weeks later, uh, right around the same day in February, around February 23rd or so. Um, that was, uh, on a per capita basis, equal to the number of ICU beds per capita in the United States, empty and full, um, which is about, if I remember correctly, about 2.8 per 10,000 adults. 
So, um, so if you took that literally and said that a city that that implemented very intense social distancing measures uh, when there were 500 confirmed cases uh, in the city would have that kind of uh, spark spike, you might you know you might be in the right range. Differences include, of course, that they were probably testing and confirming more cases than we, so probably, in fact, the relevant number for the U.S. would be smaller than that in, a, uh, in terms of what number of confirmed cases would, would correspond to the same point in the epidemic. Um, yet another reason why our testing inadequacy is going to cost lives. Um, uh, other aspects that might not be comparable include that Wuhan probably was able to do better uh, social distancing or more effective social distancing than a typical American city uh, due to the, the governmental system and uh, also the degree of, um, uh, uh, well, yeah, the essentially consequences of, of the kind of government there is there. Um, and there are also obviously many other differences um, my colleague, Caroline Bucky, uh, who will be on one of these calls in the next few days, is working on a county-level model, surge model, uh, to try to look at this in more detail uh, based on, on local, local age structure and local, um, local ICU bed capacity. Um, and, I mean, to add on yet more levels of concern, I think this is this is what we might be looking forward to in the next next few weeks but if we take social distancing measures away at some point we may experience repeated ones repeated surges like this so um, the last thing I'll say is that um, if you look at around the country there are clearly areas with a lot of uh, a lot of known cases and then there are areas like Florida with uh, with a lot of fever that's unexplained and not a lot of, uh, of confirmed cases because of limited testing. And then there are areas that seem to be less uh, affected. And I think that is what you expect uh, as an infectious disease epidemiologist, that, that communicable diseases take off uh, with some randomness. So some places take off early and some places take off later. Um, and because exponential growth is like compound interest and sort of time is what matters uh, the you can you could very easily have two places that did everything the same but just one got lucky and the epidemic didn't take off there was no introduction that that led to more cases uh, for a month or so after someplace else that was unlucky and had it start early and the place that was unlucky would have the same problem a month earlier. So I think as we see things getting worse in Seattle and New York and some other places, it would not be the right conclusion for for other parts of the country to say, oh, we missed, it's not going to happen to us. It's completely expected that, that it might happen just at a later date. Yep. <laughs> That's great. Thanks so much. Next question. Um, hi, I was wondering, you know, you were talking about, about um, people who might uh, be particularly infectious, and I was wondering if you, you know, we've seen news reports uh, of a case um, in South Korea of a woman who allegedly um, was a super spreader. I think they were referred to, referred to her as patient 39. Um, have you, um, you know, that was the stuff that was reported about that was pretty anecdotal, but uh, is that, um, you know, have you seen anything more? Um, academic about that case or other cases that really kind of suggest how significant the potential is? No, I haven't. And uh, uh, again, everybody's struggling to keep up. That is not something that I have been able to keep up with. Um, uh, so uh, there may be stuff out there, but I, I haven't seen it. Okay, thanks. Our next question. Hello. Uh, I would like to know if we already know if kids play an important role on the chain of transmission. Uh, if kids play an important role? Yes. Uh, I believe that is still uncertain. There is, 
better and better evidence that children do, in fact, get infected and that they shed virus, at least enough so that uh, viral tests turn positive. Um, and the, the best understanding, as I, I believe at this time, is that we failed to see that early on because children were milder and therefore didn't get tested. But um, analyses from Shenzhen in southern China uh, and um, in particular have, have suggested that uh, that children can get infected and shed. Um, what role they play in transmission is hard to say, and you could imagine it being greater than uh, than flu. So for flu, the, the reason one reason to know the answer to that question is, of course, whether closing schools is important. If this were yeah. flu, we would say yes. If we think about flu as an anchor and try to compare it, you could make arguments in either direction. You could say, well, if children are more mildly ill, then they are not coughing and sneezing and therefore are less likely to transmit the infection even if they have virus in their nose and throat. On the other hand, uh, they are also less likely to take precautions and people around them are less likely to take precautions from them, uh, around them if they're uh, mildly or asymptomatic. So I don't even believe that we know which way that particular aspect would play in terms of infectiousness. Um, so I think we are still at an early stage and perhaps the way we'll find out is uh, is when we compare places that do and don't have uh, school closures among their suite of interventions, although those places are likely to differ in many other ways. Another way, to, a better way actually to find that out would be in targeted epidemiologic studies of households um, where children uh, become infected uh, and adults are, um, are monitored, but you have to ascertain those children somehow. So it's, it's challenging. It again re relies on very widespread testing. Okay, thank you. Next question. Hi, thanks so much. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, some of this is relying on testing, uh, widespread robust testing, and I, I realize there's sort of a number of hiccups that caused a delay in getting our test rolled out sooner, but we've been hearing sort of for the last couple of weeks from the administration in different places that testing is going to ramp up and yet we're still not really seeing that. Is there an understanding that you can share of why we're still not testing as widely as we really ought to be at this point? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, I think because the resources to make them testing ramp up have not been put in place is one problem. Uh, and so I think the regulatory blockages have been, uh, have been, as I understand it, largely solved, although not completely. Um, but, but that part is, is less the, the blockage and now it's simply laboratory capacity uh, and throughput and the availability of all the pieces that you need to do testing. So you need a swab. Those are in short supply and in actual shortage in some places. Uh, in fact, you need two swabs at least. You need um, the RNA extraction kits. Those are also in shortage right now. You need healthcare workers with adequate personal protective equipment to take the test, to take the swabs. Those are in short supply. I mean, the, the PPE is in short supply. So, I mean, the, the administration has made repeated assurances that we're scaling up and then failed on multiple levels, at least three or four different levels, to make that happen, make the conditions possible for that to happen. So um, I think it's an example of uh, politicians promising something that they are not delivering, which happens in other spheres of life as well, I'm, not, I'm told. Right, and so if it's a failure there, I mean, what, what could and should they be doing to help, um, you know, curb these shortages, for example? Well, as we recommend in our piece this morning in Bloomberg, uh, treat this as a true national emergency and uh, um, activate those companies that can produce PPE should be producing nothing but PPE or nearly nothing but PPE. Those companies that can produce the RNA uh, 
extraction kits uh, need to be organized in a in a wartime kind of footing to to manufacture those uh, and similarly for the swabs and the uh, and the other pieces and then uh, getting the capacity within labs is a harder challenge but there are I mean we are the world leader in biotechnology this should not be uh, an insurmountable problem especially when you see a small town in Italy that can do it that has no industry locally and it, I mean that small town has no particular biotech industry but uh, but other countries are organizing themselves and uh, it's just a extraordinary failure by our country to to do so not to do so thank you next question mark thanks a separate question here um, I'm curious your sort of take on the um, your recommendation I, I suppose on to what degree we will, we will see um, sheltering in place or something approaching complete lockdown. Um, I, I noticed Neil Ferguson in uh, Britain kind of did a quick change from sort of let's let's sort of let this play out in the population and, and acquire some herd immunity to uh, let's go into as, as close to complete lockdown as we can very quickly. Do you do you think that's like what do you recommend and what I guess. I'm curious, what do you think is likely to happen here as far as lockdown? And, um, yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah. Um, I think from a disease control perspective, that's absolutely right. And I'm not sure if I share that description of Neil Ferguson's evolution of position, but I, I'm, I'll leave yeah, that aside. Sorry. Yeah, sure. um, but... Uh, I think from a disease control perspective, a near-complete lockdown is appropriate until we have, at least until we have time to assess the situation and build up our capacity to test uh, and to, to do and to take care of patients uh, with PPE and that sort of thing. Um, uh, I have refrained from making a blanket recommendation because uh, I know what I'm talking about in the healthcare or in the, in the epidemiology realm. I'm not an expert in the secondary and tertiary effects of locking cities down and locking places down. And I think it's a, it's a decision that should be taken, in, that should take into account those secondary and tertiary effects uh, on, on mental health, on well-being, uh, and on economic activity. Um, I am sort of struck, uh, so so I'm going to punt that one for the moment, um, and uh, and say I think there's a very compelling case from a disease control perspective, um, and those places that do choose a lockdown or a, a near lockdown need to really be careful about trying to maintain uh, the health and safety of their population on other fronts at the same time. Um, for example, I've been told that in Paris. It's, you can't go out for a walk unless you have a dog that you're walking. Uh, that may be anecdotal or, or, or apocryphal, but that is not a sensible disease control approach. Being outside is actually probably better than being inside. Um, and uh, until there's evidence that people are mobbing the parks and, and, uh, and having large gatherings in the parks, uh, those kinds of sort of overreactions I think will cause a lot of secondary problems. So I think there should be a real effort to share uh, ideas about how you do a lockdown if you're going to do it, how you keep the grocery stores and pharmacies running, how you keep plumbers and electricians and other people uh, servicing uh, what needs to be done, keep the infrastructure going. Um, we are not used to this, and I don't feel it's my position at this stage to say we need to do something that could be so destructive if done badly. Uh, I will just say that from a disease control perspective, I think we are really heading for big problems uh, in terms of healthcare overload and that from that perspective, it's a good idea. Yeah. I guess the follow-up to that, uh, Marcus, do you still feel your, your overall prediction about, um, you know, a pretty good swath of America getting infected by this over the next 12 to 18 months 
you say 40 to 70 percent. Do you still sense it's it'll be in line with that? Yeah, I have I have reduced that from 40 to 70 to down to 20 to 60 about two weeks ago, but it doesn't seem to have stuck as much as the first. Uh, uh, and that's obviously a very wide range. Uh, I've gotten a lot of questions about that. My current thinking is as follows. Clearly, China has shown that you can, you can in the short term, uh, even in a place as critical as Wuhan, bring cases down to nearly zero, uh, detected cases to zero, um, with, with uh, several weeks, about two months, I guess, from January 23rd to the present, almost two months of lockdowns. Um, if somehow that could be maintained, then over over a long period, then like over 12 to 18 months, then uh, those numbers would not come to pass because because the disease would stay under control, very likely. The problem is that I don't understand how uh, anybody, but especially a democratic society, is going to maintain that level of uh, of um, control for that period of time. So the alternative is to have cycles of cracking down and letting up, and that would slowly accumulate cases, would accumulate uh, immunity in the population, and uh, would approach those kinds of levels. If there's some other solution, like if a vaccine magically appeared, which I don't think is going to happen in the next year, that would change the game. If a treatment magically appeared, uh, or not magically appeared, but if a, if a very effective treatment appeared uh, that would allow people to get infected and get immune but uh, not have severe complications, then we would probably decide to let the infection spread more and just treat those who get infected. So, so the premise of that idea is that long-term control of the epidemic either requires vaccination of, of about half the population or more to, to acquire immunity or some other way of acquiring immunity, and the only way we have now is, uh, is natural infection. So it's, it's not about sort of the short term. Um, it's about how you stop an epidemic from spreading in a more permanent way, um, and that's where those numbers come from. It's based on models of, of how infectious diseases spread under uh, under under model mild control or or no control or intermittent you don't control. Want, yeah. Thank you, Mark. One quick follow-up, if you don't mind. Uh, I don't know if you saw the Tomas Pueyo analysis, but do you agree that if our healthcare system is overwhelmed, then the mortality rate of perhaps one percent would be higher than that? Uh, I haven't seen that analysis, but I think that's true. I mean, the healthcare system is helping. Uh, uh, and treatment obviously does help. It is also true that among those in intensive care, a significant fraction do go on to die. So it's not uh, it's not perfect, even when it's functioning at a good level. But um, nonetheless, clearly treatment is beneficial. Yeah. Great. Thanks so much. And at this time, we have no further questions in queue. Thank you. This concludes the Friday, March 20th press conference.